0: Welcome to Legalese. At LegalEase, we offer you a diverse and civil perspective on current issues affecting America and beyond, inviting the smartest minds from Arizona and the country to politely discuss the things that matter in a Socratic manner.
1: Our intent is to improve discourse and information dissemination in a time of hyper-partisanship and poor critical thinking.
0: No one will be called names. No one's beliefs will be mocked. This is our response to recent and biased news content. We are here simply to deliver balanced and informative discussions about legal matters that affect us all from yours truly, soon-to-be lawyers and current lawyers and journalists united. We offer you all of this without convoluted legalese, which is a word for fancy lawyer talk. We hope
1: you enjoy the show.
0: Welcome to LegalEase. This is our second episode, and great timing because Phoenix Comic Fest is in town in Phoenix, Arizona, and we have a panel on esports business and the law. So it's just uh, timely for our uh, official episode to also cover esports in more detail than the panel will. And here today with us is Cisco Maldonado, and Harris Peskin. Uh, so, thank you both for being here today and taking the time to, to do this interview with us. I'm going to go ahead and let Harris introduce himself, then Cisco, and then I have two co-hosts here with me today, Andrew Theory and Dominic Kearns, and they will also introduce themselves after our two guests. So, here we go. Well, thank you so much for having me today. Um, yeah, as
2: you said, my name is Harris Peskin. I'm attorney at ESG Law. Uh, ESG Law is right now the most prominent, probably most the, the biggest esports law firm uh, that exists, we represent seven out of the ten North American LCS teams, six out of the twelve Overwatch League teams, and we do a good deal, we work uh, exclusively with the teams. I personally uh, have been involved with esports for several years now, dating back to uh, 2015, I helped broker the acquisition of H2K Gaming, um, which is a European LCS based team. I At the time I was working at a corporate law firm. I left that position and I uh, went full time with H2K, um, ended up going uh, over Europe, spending some time there, uh, and basically H2K ended up finishing third in the world that year. Uh, I ended up leaving H2K, going full time uh, to be an attorney again, starting my own law practice, and uh, then I ended up somehow getting over to ESG, and now we represent a, a great majority of the teams, and you know we we see this on a more you know on an insider basis. We see the are, you know, stuff playing out where we're representing all the stakeholders and we're representing the teams against all the stakeholders in the industries, like uh, you know, whether, well, whether we're negotiating against a game developer for a team participation agreement or players, we're basically the ones that are, I would say, the gatekeepers to getting access to the teams. And it's a really interesting position to be in. So thank you for
3: having
0: me. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh,
3: this is Cisco Maldonado. I'm currently the head of marketing for the Motion Picture and Television Fund. Uh, Prior to my position there, I was the director of uh, global brand marketing for DC Comics, and I did that for about five to seven years, and my connection with eSports specifically for the last year and a half, I've been working with a partner that I went to school with, and uh, we've gone through the academic and practical process of creating an eSports team and in our search for different investors, so it's a rather timely discussion that we're having, so thanks for having me. Thank
0: you. Thank you.
1: Hi, my name is Andrew Theory. I'm a recent graduate of ASU Law School. I've been casually interested in eSports for a long time now, and upon graduation have decided to focus more intently on it as a career choice. I also have experience in IP, patent, and trademark copyright law as well.
2: And I'm Dominic Kearns, also a recent graduate of ASU Law School. Uh, I have to admit, I haven't followed eSports too closely until recently. Uh, but I've been very fascinated with esports trying to go mainstream. You've seen ESPN and some other news outlets try to make it go mainstream, and I'm just curious whether people on the inside want that to happen, and what are the similarities and differences between esports versus your quote-unquote mainstream professional sports?
1: All right, so we're going to go ahead and get started with Some questions for you guys. So our podcast is focused on individuals and how their relationship to the law can be affected by some of these common policies and a lot of the legal impetus in esports is contract based. So I want to get a little bit of information for both of you about what makes a good contract. What does somebody who wants to get involved with esports either as a player or maybe as a coach or an investor looking to start a team Uh, what are some things to look for in a contract? Well listen, uh, at the end of the day, first before we even get there,
2: it's important from a team perspective to realize that everything is going to flow from the game developer. Uh, The game developer, unlike uh, traditional sports, you know, I use this analogy all the time when we're talking about uh, the differences between professional and and, uh, esports. What you're talking about here is the differences that in a sport like football or sport like hockey, the game developer does not own the football or the hockey hockey puck, right? But here we're talking about, because of intellectual property laws, a game developer quite literally owning the underlying intellectual property that is put into this this game. So the game developer literally owns the game. And they can tell you how they want you to play it when you go ahead and sign, you know, an EULA, when you go ahead and sign a licensing agreement to play the game, it's that that thing you press accept on, you know, when you're scrolling through your Apple terms of service every single time. They dictate those terms. And so all the power... And all the requirements um, of what needs to be in
1: a player contract, they need to come and, and they, need, they need to mirror what the game developer is going to require.
2: So when you're looking at a, a player contract or a sponsorship contract or any kind of contract from a team perspective, if you're participating in an eSports league with the game developer who's, say, organizing this league or with a league organizer who has a license from the game developer, you're going to need to make sure you're complying with those rules and regulations that's the first that's the first thing uh, beyond and, and that could be you know stringent at times especially as it relates to uh, player contracts where you might talk about a player um you know let's let's say i want to sign a player and we he has a, a gambling sponsor right he happens to stream uh his his uh you know whatever he does he happens to stream on twitch and he has a, a gambling sponsor well it might be the case that if he wants to participate in the uh the, the game developers league, whatever that league is, but let's just call it, you know, League of Legends, for instance, and he has a uh, gambling sponsor on a stream, he's not going to be able to participate in that league without the game without first doing away with that gambling sponsor, provided, you know, Riot Games still has its policy in place, which basically prevents gambling sponsors. So everything would flow down from the top. Uh, other than that, I would say, you know, best practices, it's a standard employment contract. Uh, you're looking basically at, uh, you know, employing an individual to go ahead and participate on your team just like any other individual participating in the other league. The difference between this and professional sports, though, would obviously be that in professional sports, you're dealing with a collectively bargained agreement and, and the contract is going to flow from that in the form of a standard player contract, but here you're talking more along the lines of this is just going to be negotiated between the team and the player, and the team is ultimately going to be dictating as to the terms are going to be in the contract and the player, because he's not part of any sort of uh, union, is, is more or less going to have to accept that um the terms that are presented to them that's not to say that players haven't really tried to branch out and go ahead and gain more power because they obviously have over the past several years we've seen the influx of player agents and good ones at that um that have come from professional sports that have come just endemic to the esports industry and that has helped kind of level the uh, playing field a little bit but nevertheless it is certainly the case that um This would would basically be a team dictating an employment contract to a player on the terms that the player is more or less going to have to accept
3: if he wants to participate in the league. I think from uh, investor, new investor business point of view, and I have a lot of the comments just recently um, spoken, it can't be just, hey, I know five really good guys, we want to make a team. As the sport is getting bigger and more mainstream, um, I take a look at things with the end in mind, knowing that depending on which platform we want to get involved in, whether it's League, whether it's Overwatch, um, you have to think, okay, if we get the money to invest in a team and create an organization, you have to think about what's going to happen on the legal side first. And in my specific case, we know that, oh, we're going to have to hire a lawyer just because all these things that we don't know about, we don't want to get painted into a corner. In the case of Overwatch, if we're going to create a team and we want to have merchandising, right, because we have a really cool logo and we want to have people selling t-shirts, how does that work with Activision, right? How does that work with whatever venue that we want to be able to sell those things into? Um, and that opens up a whole different door in terms of intellectual property and licensing and all the things that go along with it. So I think in, in terms of uh, the discussion that we're having now, it's you know if you're thinking about doing this, you have to play the game out to its ultimate conclusion, and it can't be just hey let's get the guys together and you know find a tournament to go into.
1: So with that in mind, what's um what's a typical term for a contract? Do you do you structure these things to be long term? Do you structure them to be sort of shorter, more episodic sort of? I I think from
3: I think from my just- point of view, where where my partner and I are in right now is. We want to create a team and we want investors to help us create this. Depending on the investor, they may just want to hold on to it for a few years and then spin it off. Or if they're really into it, they're going to hold it off indefinitely. And depending on what their game plan is, we have to be aligned with their exit plan. And if their exit plan is five, ten years and the average you know lifespan of a player depending on where they are is like anywhere from like three to five years because they just get tired or burnt out or whatever it might be that'll sort of uh, inform the decision that we have to make of, hey, we have a great team now, but what's it going to look like in two, three years when another team approaches them or the chemistry isn't there between the players and they always are infighting? It's not just the stuff that people see on the screen or in the arena. It's how these people getting along? And it goes into a lot of even HR issues in terms of, conflict resolution and how the coaches are dealing with the trainers are dealing with the owners how involved do the owners want to be are they going to be owner investors so um, it's a really complicated answer to a simple question but the more you think about it you sort of have to play out the game and find out what happens if this person who's your you know lead support doesn't like playing with a guy who's going to be going main right so
2: it's also important to note that um, <coughs> although obviously you know with investment goals are going to be bound at times by where the money what the money is looking for. You know, you really have to look at a lot what the game developer is going to require. I mean, as of right now, the there are certain leagues uh, that put caps on the amount of time players can be signed for. That's because they oftentimes speak for the players themselves. So if we're talking like a league like League of Legends, Overwatch, you're probably gonna be looking at a three year three-year contract Um, that's just because you won't be your contract won't be approved but it's it's a bit of a different process right than a traditional sports league or just a traditional employment contract where you have to almost have this contract that you're signing approved to to participate in this league and game developers will put limitations restrictions on the terms that could be in those contracts depending on the participation agreement that you're signing Um, so as it relates to Overwatch or League of Legends you're you're probably looking at like a three-year contract Uh, with that said I would say that with respect to um, you know the comments Cisco's making regarding uh, investor goals it's almost my it is my opinion that signing and and this is just a strategy in general uh, it's more strategic in nature but You should, when you're signing these contracts with players, and my opinion is you should be looking to sign these players for as long term as possible, with as easy an out. This is from a team perspective, an investor perspective, with an easy an out as possible. That would just be because, um, obviously, these players' contracts are, you know, their assets, their values. And if you have an exit strategy where you want to be getting out and you want to be selling, you want to be able to sell these contracts along with it. That doesn't necessarily mean that you know the contracts need to go along with any sale of the business whether it's a stock purchase agreement or it's an asset purchase agreement what we're really talking about here is having the rights and abilities to go ahead and sell that contract if need be because those contracts are valuable i'll give you an example if i'm a team like uh, team liquid and i'm selling my business and i have a guy like double lift on my team Doublelift himself is a very valued streamer. Uh, he's a very valued player. He has a huge fan base, and whoever's going to be acquiring that business would want to have Doublelift on that, you know, on on the new side of the business. So they'd probably want him under contract already. It would it would enhance the value, if anything, it would make you more attractive to sponsors. So I would always argue um, that you would want as long-term a contract as possible with. And easy and out as possible
1: on that contract with termination rights in, term, in the sense that you want to be terminated, you want to have the right to terminate
2: without cause, um, with a low severance payment if, if need be, anything at all. Uh, and the only protection I would add on there is that you should probably have some sort of an assignment protection whereby you know where you're, you're kind of protected against, um, or you give yourself the right to go ahead and assign this contract or transfer the contract to some
3: sort of an investment group that would go ahead and purchase the team. So, yeah. Hey, can I come up with a question for that? So if one of the questions that we sort of ask ourselves internally is, how do you value a team, right? And you can always forecast, here's what the projected winnings are. But when it comes to valuing a player, which would be part of the team, if it does get sold, what's your opinion in terms of how you would value a specific player? Is it the duration of the contract? Is it the revenue streams that they might be having on their own? Like, what do you what do you think about
1: that?
2: Well, I would think that it would have to be um – well, listen, right, so it depends on how you structure that contract in terms of the rev share you're going to have with the player. But at the end of the day, it comes down to an economic approach. You have to have an economic approach to, to esports revenue. You know, it's not traditional sports team revenue, where in traditional sports, a team's revenue is going to come from three sources. It's going to come from the three primary sources. It's going to come from broadcasting revenue, which would be like, hey, I'm the NHL. I'm going to see all my games broadcast on NBC. NBC is going to pay me $2 billion over 10 years. That's one. That's about 60% of traditional sports teams' revenues. Uh, You're going to look at commercial sponsorship revenue. That's going to represent about 20% of a traditional sports team's revenue. And then you're going to look at ticket sales or or walk up days. I mean, these are all, and that'll fill in the blanks along with other things like merchandising and what have you, and then group licensing deals. But the point is that only one of those things actually exists for an esports team, right? You're not going to have ticket
1: sales because if there's going to be any ticketing, it's going to be done by the game developer who's going to sell tickets to the studio, so you can cut that
2: out. You're not going to have any broadcasting because the broadcasting rights, in terms of of the copyright and the right to broadcast this, also belongs to the game developer as part of his uh, 106 1976 Copyright Act uh, rights. So obviously those two are out the door. That means you have sponsorships, and from a sponsor's perspective, and that's where most of the money from for, for an esports scene comes from. Sponsorships. they will have other you know side deals, but that's where you're going to be making most of your money. So when we're talking about sponsorships and how you're making most of that money, the question comes down to: Well, what is a sponsor going to pay for? A sponsor is going to pay for eyes on their product. At the end of the day, you're only as good of, to a sponsor, and you're only worth as much money as you're able to generate views for them. And obviously eSports is an attractive industry for um, you know sponsors because they get to see the 18- to 34-year-old male demographic, which is one that they actually covet, as opposed to traditional sports where it's more or less the
1: age is growing. And, and you know, you look at baseball, for instance. Baseball was the, the median age of a baseball viewer was, I think, 46 a couple of years ago,
2: and nowadays it's 57. So it's only going up. Uh, so they, they covet the esports audience. So in terms of how valuable a player is, a player is as valuable as the delta between viewership with and without him because um, that's where you're making most of your money. It's not so much the prize money because the prize money, first of all, depending on the esports contract, but typically I would say industry standard is players going to see the vast majority of that. Teams will say see maybe 15 to 20% of the prize money the pre-taxes, so they won't really see that much of it.
1: Thank you. You're going to see most of the money from commercial sponsorships, and so obviously then, a you know, player
2: you have to use something called uh, CPM impressions per thousand. So basically, that 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 formula, the CPM formula, is something that sponsors are going to use when they're assessing how much money that they should pay you. And the question ultimately comes down to how many impressions can this individual that's going to be on my team generate for me? How much social media following does he have? How many hours does he typically stream on Twitch? Mm-hmm. Is there going to be some sort of um, you know, requirement that you have certain hourly requirements on Twitch, and, and that will guide your decision. Great.
1: I've got one more really short question, just to keep the focus on the players themselves. Um, esports is unique in that a lot of the players, you know, maintain their own streams, um, maintain uh, apart from the team, maybe. So I was going to ask, what sort of rights do players typically reserve as far as streaming rights or rights to their own publicity and brands, and maybe their ability? To maintain their own sponsorships, is that something that you see in these contracts a lot? Well, it's it's certainly something that they're trying to do more
2: of, uh, and they certainly uh, have the right to do that, and they have the right to make that argument. I mean, traditional sports players will reserve their rights to publicity and whatnot, but in esports. It had been common practice for teams to try to get a hold of that. That's not to say they'll go for their streaming channels. Obviously, teams recognize that you know, someone's Twitch channel, someone's Twitter that belongs to the player. But they will require that the player put out certain content because at the end of the day, if a team is going to play pay a player money, right? If, if the player is going to be making money from the player, they need to be able to make that money to pay the player, which means that they need to be generating income themselves. And that income is typically going to come from Uh, their ability to generate sponsorships and and have players do these promotional activities on behalf of the sponsor. That's how they make their money. So there is a requirement in some sense that the teams, in order to actually pay the player any money, require the player attach his publicity and attach his likeness to certain sponsor products. That's just that's going to be a necessity. And oftentimes in these player contracts, what you'll see is a requirement that they do that kind of a thing. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to make money. And it's just just how it goes. Um, Other than that, you know, at the beginning of esports, what you would typically see
1: is you would see, uh, you know, teams taking players' rights off for likenesses,
2: for their likeness rights in perpetuity. But that's gone away mostly. I would say that uh, the practices have kind of been reformed a little bit. Players have now begun to argue that you know, play, teams should only get their likeness for, I would guess, the term of the uh, agreement, however long that term might be. Um, but that's not to say they won't have them, they will. And also it's important to note that teams are oftentimes required by game developers to sub-license those rights to game developers. So, Or they'll or they'll act as a pass-through for game developers to then contract with the players for those rights. So, you know, in terms of what what uh, likeness rights are being uh, assigned or licensed, oftentimes it might be in perpetuity depending on the contract that you're, you're discussing. I mean, if it's a contract where the player is discussing with the game developer, the game developer is going to say, well, hey, as a prerequisite to playing and participating in our league, you're going to need to give us these these rights in perpetuity, and we're going to need to have to be able to have the right to use these rights uh, for marketing purposes, for historical purposes after you've gone, uh, after you've stopped playing. And that kind of irks players a little bit, but they haven't really organized
1: against the game developers so much as they've they've started to organize against the teams. I see. Would you agree with that, Cisco, as far as the rights that you would allow players? maintain and, and the sort of control that you would expect to have over them as a representative for your team and your brand? Yeah. I mean, in terms of
3: ultimately, if, if the goal is to take a team and build it bigger and then ultimately um, be able to make a profit off of that, you want to be able to make sure that the overall value of your team is as valuable as possible. And value doesn't equal just money. It offers a certain level of flexibility of can you get into out of certain contracts, right? If you put all this time and effort into making a team and building it, and then you want to offload that. You want to make sure that you have as little entanglements as possible that you pass through Mm -hmm. the next person, right? Because the last thing you want on your hands is this white elephant where it's like it's too expensive to operate and maintain, and no one wants to buy it because it's such a huge... Deal and players' rights um, are going to be at the forefront of that. Sure, sure.
0: I'm going to ask a quick question, and I don't, I don't require a long response to this. We have to wrap up by ten to head there, um, to our panel. So uh, there, this was recent in the news. I think it was uh, yesterday only. Uh, Valve Corp is coming under fire because they allowed this new game to circulate on Steam, and it, the setting is at in a school and uh, it's getting a lot of criticism, and I'm wondering what the First Amendment implications are with regards to that situation and other legal issues that come up with that type of game circulating steam.
2: Well, So it's important to first understand that this is not so much eSports, but it's more video game mode, and that's fine, but it's important to understand the the rights holders and and what rights they actually have. Uh, Those rights would basically be, uh, you have... Uh, in this instance, uh, a game developer, uh, the person or the team that made Active Shooter, you have, um, I would presume, you have the game pub, the the pu- publishing platform, which would be Steam, and their interactions um, will basically be the ones that matter here. So, uh, I think they were using Steam Direct here, and they basically were able to publish directly. That basically means that they're. Circumventing this process where they're negotiating with Steam, and they're really just signing some sort of boilerplate agreement and agreeing to be bound by certain things. I actually think one of the things that they agree to be bound by in those kinds of agreements is the is to not publish any obscene or uh, such material. With that said, um, I would I would pretty much say here that you're looking at a situation where there's a game developing company that's publishing some sort of obscene material and. There's an argument to be made that this is not protected by the First Amendment, as you said. With that said, there is no – you know, Congress here is not really publishing any law to to restrict the publication of this kind of a game. When you're talking about obscene material, traditionally what you're talking about is, you know, the government basically preventing you from – Doing something, You know, you're preventing you from making a publication of some sort of obscene material. That's not really what we're seeing here. We're seeing an argument being made that Steam shouldn't have been, you know, shouldn't have published this stuff in the first place, uh, which is a fine thing to say. Um, and honestly, Steam doesn't really have to be bound by First Amendment obligations in terms of, you know, what it allows to be published, what it doesn't allow it to be published. Um, it could do whatever it wants to as a platform developer. I mean, the argument would be, let's say, for example, just bring it back to a sports analogy. You're going into a sports game or you're going into uh, you know some sort of a match. You are entitled to say whatever you want, and for sure you could do that, but when a security guard comes over to you and says you have to leave, they're also entitled to kick you out of their private property. The analogy here would be that Steam's platform is almost like private property. They could tell you what you can and what you can't publish on it, and... You know what their rules—you know their rules will govern, and it's not so much a uh, First Amendment question then, because the government isn't playing so much of a role as it is a private, uh, an owner of private property, basically saying you can do this, you can't do that. So for them to permit the publication of such a game, or for them to. Uh, basically say that this can't happen would be a choice that they can make at their sole discretion. As I had said before, if the government were to come in and say these kinds of games can't be made, then you'd get into an inquiry as to whether or not uh, this is protected speech or it's not protected speech, which ultimately leads, leads in my opinion, to the conclusion that it's more obscene and it probably wouldn't be protected so much as um, the government would be able to go ahead and and
3: prohibit that kind of a publication to begin with. I think from a management point of view, as... Uh, team owner and operator you would probably want to at least at this current political climate you would want to steer clear away from valve as far as possible just because if your money is going to be coming from sponsors whether it is from doritos or a coke or a pepsi or toyota whoever it might be you're not going to want that kind of negative press right there's two issues whether you could and whether you should and first amendment um in terms of Yes, they may or may not have the absolute right and that'll be an issue for the courts to decide in the coming years because this isn't going to be the first time a question like this will come up. But in terms of if a move like this is being made, you have to think of what are the ramifications for the press and the media and some of those non-endemic sponsors who aren't too familiar with the space. All they know that it's big and there's a lot of eyes and now those eyes are looking back at the sponsors saying, how can you sponsor such an organization that has ties with these? Um, I think that's something that people need to see on a more practical basis. Sure, sure.
0: We need to wrap up. We're, we're cutting it close to the panel. Um, fine. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Harris. Thank you, Cisco. Thanks to my two co-hosts, Andrew and Dominic. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're signing, signing out.
1: Glad to be part. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you, Harris. Thank you for making the time. Yeah, no problem. All right. Well, keep in touch. Yep, absolutely. Take care, guys. All right. Have a good day. Bye. Thank